0: Hello, dear listener, and thank you for downloading episode 2 of the Keep Digging Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Zeke, and today is my favorite day of the year. If, of course, you are listening to this episode the day it's released. That's right, it's Halloween 2016. Now, unfortunately, today I had three great guests lined up for the episode, but they all backed out over the course of the week, leaving me to my own devices. And so, our Halloween episode will be shorter than our normal episodes, because, unfortunately, like I said before, I don't have any guests. But, I do have a great ghost story for you from a book that I used to read as a kid, and I also have a great ghost story from my own childhood. That's right, one thing that I am likely to be talking about a lot over the course of this podcast is the fact that I believe I grew up in a haunted house. I grew up in a small town just outside of where I live now, in Schenectady. That town was called Rotterdam. I lived in an area that was built in the 1940s, and I have all kinds of weird stories about the house I grew up in, but today I'm just going to tell you one quick story that's relevant to the story that you'll be hearing now. And so without further fanfare, without further to do, without hearing me ramble anymore, I'd like to read to you today's ghost story. It comes from a book called New England's Things That Go Bump in the Night. Now I got this book when I was probably around nine years old. My parents bought this for me. And it's one of those cheap little thin touristy haunted local area books. But I used to love these things. I still do love these things. Every year we would go on a vacation to Maine and I would get a different lighthouse ghost stories book or haunted New England book. Or if we ended up going somewhere in the Adirondacks, I'd get a haunted upstate New York book. So a lot of the stories I read on this podcast are going to be coming from these cheap little books that I love because the stories are so obscure and out there. And this one used to really freak me out. Most of these stories would, give, would send a chill down my spine and then I'd forget about them. But this one, because it reminded me of the experiences that I was having in my own home, felt way too real. And so here it is, The Boogeyman of Beggarly from New England's Things That Go Bump in the Night by Robert Ellis Cahill. The first person to petition an American court to change the name of something, namely a village, was Roger Conan, the founder of Gloucester, Salem, and Beverly, Massachusetts. And two years later, in 1629, they were evicted from Salem by Governor Endicott, the Puritan leader. Four fishermen and their families, namely Conan, John Balch, Peter Palfrey, and John Woodbury, were given 200 acres across the river from their Salem homes by Endicott, who didn't want their fishy business or their growing of that filthy weed tobacco in his new, pure town of Salem. Conan's new settlement was called Beverly, but the Salem Puritans across the river called it Beggarly. The fishermen didn't take kindly to the name bestowed upon their new settlement, so Conan petitioned to the general court, stood before the magistrates, and said, A great dislike and discontent of our people for this name, Beverly, is upon us, because we are a small place. It has caused on us a nickname of Beggarly, and we request that the name of our small settlement be changed. Conan's request was denied. The name Beverly and the nickname Beggarly have remained to this day. The nickname is usually not used by Salemites, except during the annual Thanksgiving football rivalry, when the Beverly Panthers take on the Salem Witches. Throughout the centuries, notoriety visited Salem, especially in the 17th century, as the center for witch hysteria, and in the 18th, although Beverly became the birthplace of the American Navy, Salem stole Beverly's thunder by producing the greatest fleet of privateersmen and the most successful bevy of legal pirates in America. Even today, in fame and popularity, Salem far exceeds neighbor Beverly, and Beverly must be content to live in the shadow of the witch city. Like Salem, however, Beverly has its fair share of witches, ghosts, goblins, and things that go bump in the night. Probably the most underrated, beastly character of the dark underworld is the boogeyman, a deliciously chilling fellow from our childhood days. But fear not! He is alive and well in Beggarly, and was recently encountered by a good friend of mine. Steve Barsanti, now a young, handsome veterinarian, moved to Beverly from Linsfield as a teenager. He, with his parents, two brothers, and a sister, moved into a 32-room mansion on Woodbury Street, overlooking Beverly Harbor. The street, coincidentally, was named for one of the four founders of the town, John Woodbury. The house had been built around the turn of the century for the Czechoslovakian ambassador, Beggarly lost its poor hand-me-down image in the 1800s when it became a popular summer resort for America's rich and powerful. The house had been unoccupied for a number of years before my father purchased it in 1965, said Steve. And I remember the real estate lady telling us that the large ornate living room on the first floor had been used many times to wake corpses of past residents who had died in the house. The spacious, shadowy kitchen with three pantries was, at first, my mother's favorite room. But soon, she confided to me and my older brother she constantly felt the presence of someone unseen in the kitchen. My brother and I felt it too, like someone was watching us. I often found myself staring into one of the three pantries expecting to see someone appear, and a hollow feeling enveloped me whenever I entered the kitchen. There were times in the evening when I wanted a snack from the kitchen, but I would have to walk down a narrow black stairway to get there. Not only was I always reluctant to do so, but my dog absolutely refused to take the stairway that led from my third-floor bedroom to the kitchen. If I decided to brave the stairway alone, she would sit at the head of the stairs, her head bent to watch me tiptoe around the corner, and she would go and wait until I returned. Almost every morning since the day they moved in, Mr. Barsanti found the kitchen door that led to the backyard open. He would scold the children, but all four strongly denied leaving the door open. Steve's mother insisted that burglars were coming in at night, disrupting the pantries, which she found in disarray almost every morning, and moving the kitchen table, which she discovered in a different part of the kitchen, almost every morning as well. Frightened, the Barsantis had new locks made for all the downstairs doors, including the kitchen leading to the outside, which Mr. Barsanti had double-locked on the inside and outside. My father figured that, if he locked the doors himself at night before he went to bed, explained Steve, these strange occurrences would stop. But they didn't. They, in fact, seemed to increase, baffling my mother, frustrating my father, and I have to admit, titillating my brother, sisters, and I. I do have to admit, however, that finding a double-locked kitchen door open in the morning did send shivers up and down my spine, and whenever I felt obliged to enter the kitchen at night, alone, I moved along about my business as quickly as possible, never looking left or right into one of those pantries, always feeling that someone was at my heels ready to pounce on me. Two years after they moved in, Mrs. Borsanti and Steve had a strange, disturbing experience when they were alone in the house one rainy afternoon. She was in the front hall at the foot of a 32-foot-high spiral staircase that led to the second and third floors. It was a beautiful, wide-flowing stairway carpeted in royal red with white wood paneling and an open view to all floors, including the doors of all the rooms on the upper floors. Mrs. Barsanti saw someone enter her husband's office at the second floor. Thinking it was Steve, she shouted, Steve, stay out of your father's office. Steve was in another room on the first floor, and hearing his mother yell at him, he stepped into the front hall. She was so dumbfounded that, at first, she couldn't speak. Then she shouted that there was an intruder on the second floor. My first impulse was to run to the phone and call for the police, said Steve, aged 18. But as I did so, my mother and I both saw a figure leap from the balcony located outside my father's second-story office. Neither Steve nor his mother saw or heard the intruder hit the ground. All they saw was a dark figure leap into the air and fall. Even at the time, said Steve, I questioned whether or not it was a human being. The police were called, and Mr. Barsanti, who had been away on business, returned. But nothing in his office, nor in the rest of the house, had been taken or disturbed. After that episode, said Steve, I kept a loaded World War II German 9 millimeter pistol on the nightstand beside my bed. It was my father's, retrieved from an unfortunate soldier during the war. Both my father and I had great respect for that pistol. So to protect it, I placed a piece of rabbit fur over the nightstand and placed the lamp, alarm clock, and then the gun on the fur piece. For most of the following summer... Steve was left alone in the house. The rest of the family had gone off to vacation at their lakeside cottage in New Hampshire. Steve was a lifeguard in Beverly and had to remain behind. One evening, returning home after being out with his pals until about midnight, he settled into bed on the third floor and fell asleep, his gun on the table beside him. He was rudely awakened by a hideous laugh at 3 a.m. It was an evil, echoing laugh coming from someone standing at the foot of his bed, but it was so dark Steve couldn't see a thing. I was paralyzed with fear. My ears bursting with this loud, hideous laugh, my eyes bulging, yet I was unable to see the intruder. Shaking off the initial shock, I quickly rolled out of bed and onto the narrow corridor between my bed and the wall of my room, groping for the pistol on the Nate table as I hit the floor. I couldn't find the gun at first. There was something different about the table. It was as if the lamp, clock, and gun had been rearranged, and the rabbit fur was gone, or at least missing from the nightstand. My fingers felt the cold steel of the pistol, and I hugged it to my chest but the shock of my table being rearranged by some unseen hand heightened my fear, if that was possible at this time, for I was all but frozen to the floor. Gasping for breath, I listened. The laughing had stopped, but I thought I heard Harvey breathing from across my little room. Was it a burglar? Or a prankster? A family member returned home and trying to frighten me? I dared not fire my pistol on the slight chance it was a mischievous friend or brother. I laid on the floor for a full fifteen minutes, yet it seemed like an eternity. I tried to locate and distinguish every sound I heard from the creaking old house. I concluded that it had to be a brazen intruder who knew enough not to move, waiting patiently for me to make the first move so he could perhaps frighten me into a corner. Steve finally built up enough courage to shout at the interloper. I've got a loaded gun, he said, and I'm not afraid to use it. He waited for a response, thinking that the man would either attempt to escape or come rushing at him. Neither happened. There was no response, no noise. Whoever you are, identify yourself or leave this house immediately. I will not harm you or try to stop you. Steve waited again for a response, but there was none. Feeling cramped and vulnerable, Steve moved to a sitting position on the floor beside the bed. Keeping the gun pointed in front of him, fingers of both hands on the trigger. I am crazy on living, Steve shouted, almost hysterically at the time. Any further attempt to frighten me or approach me will be met with a burst from my semi-automatic 9 millimeter pistol. Listening to his own heavy breathing, minutes passed. I finally decided, said Steve, that the only reasonable course of action was for me to leave the house, but it took me a while to decide whether I would take the front stairway, which was open to all those doors that people could pop out of, or the narrow, winding back stairway that led to the kitchen. When I decided, I yelled out my plan to the intruder. I am going to leave the house by the back stairway. If you interfere, you will be met with a pitiless burst from my semi-automatic 9 millimeter pistol. If you think I will encounter you on my way, you should speak up now. Steve listened, but there was no response. Slowly and as quietly as possible... He lifted himself from the floor, with one hand probing the darkness before him, and the other ready to squeeze the trigger of the pistol. He moved slowly forward in a crouched position. Tiptoeing from the bed to the bureau. he found the keys to the kitchen door and his car, stuffed them into the elastic band of his jockey underwear, and moved on towards the back stairway. I had to pass the bathroom and two bedrooms before I came to the light switch that illuminated the back staircase, but by the time I got to the second floor, the light I turned on was obscured, so I grabbed for the light chain on the second floor landing, There was a bright flash, and then the bulb frizzled out. Now I knew I was dealing with more than a human intruder. I dashed down the stairs. My body and spirit flooded with panic. Landing with a thud in the kitchen, I would have to pass the three pantries, where knives and other chopping weapons were stored, and then would have to put down the gun to properly set the keys in the locks to open the back door. I have never felt such fear and suffocation. Instead of the intruder trapping me, I had trapped myself. Steve tiptoed across the creaking kitchen floor, chills creeping down his spine as he passed the three seemingly possessed pantries. He easily slipped one lock, then fumbling with the keys, his hands shaking terribly, he managed to unlock the back door. I went bounding out into the night, sucking in deep gulps of fresh air. His car was parked under a covered carport near the kitchen. But even after I jumped into the car, he said, I was still fearful. As I backed out of the driveway, I thought I might be attacked from the bushes. Now Steve was driving the back roads of Beverly, a loaded pistol on the front seat beside him, dressed in only white jockey shorts. He kept driving from road to road until night turned to dawn. Realizing that heavy morning commuter traffic would soon commence and that his neighbors would soon be up and around, Steve had to return home. He had no choice, if for nothing more than to put on some clothes. He drove back to the house, slowly up the driveway, examining all the windows from the old house, looking for a light or a strange face. I felt like someone was watching me all this time. I parked as close as I could to the kitchen door, and grabbing the gun, I ran back into the house. I found the kitchen door wide open. I, of course, had left it open. Once inside the kitchen, I slowly scanned the room looking for the intruder. Then I noticed, placed on the kitchen table, folded like a fancy napkin, was the rabbit fur that had been on my bedroom nightstand. I had certainly not brought it into the kitchen, and the only time I had noticed it gone from my nightstand was when I was groping for the gun while the intruder laughed at me. Steve left the house immediately, closing and locking the kitchen door behind him. He grabbed an old pair of paint pants from the garage and drove barefooted up to New Hampshire to join the rest of his family. From there, he went off to school in the fall. My father sold the house a few weeks later, said Steve, and since my terrifying encounter, I never returned to that house again. Some might say that I imagined the laughing man at the foot of my bed, or that it was part of a bad dream, but I didn't imagine or dream the rabbit fur folded neatly on the kitchen table. That was real. And as far as I'm concerned, so was that boogeyman. Oof. That's a spooky one. Now I said that story was relevant to me, and it's true. That story is relevant to me because I believe I grew up in a haunted house. We used to have weird creaking sounds. I would find cupboards open. I'd hear this strange clapping coming from between mine and my sister's room. We lived in the attic of our parents' house. But all those stories are typical run-of-the-mill ghost stuff, and I don't feel the need to go over them right here today. Maybe in a future episode, but not today. Today, I want to tell you about the first summer I was ever left home alone. It was right after my senior year of high school. I was not in a great frame of mind. I was going through some problems with depression at the time, and I remember that every single night I was afraid to stay home alone because I believed the house was haunted, So every night I would have a friend sleep over, and I was not supposed to have any friends over in the house at all when my parents were gone, and I didn't know what time they would be coming home the next day. So, I decided that I was going to man up, and I was going to stay home alone all night, the last night of my parents' vacation. We had two dogs, both small little yappy dogs. I had to keep them in their kennels at night when I was home alone, because they would freak out and destroy everything in the house, and I needed to sleep. So, we had Pierre and his kennel in the back room, and we had Alvin and his kennel in the kitchen. Sound familiar? The kitchen was one of the creepier rooms in my house. Now, I remember that night at about 10:30, deciding to go to sleep. I didn't turn off any lights. I left the TV on. I put Alvin and Pierre in their kennels, I said goodnight to them, and I darted upstairs, I closed my door behind me, I had my TV and my bedroom light on, and I decided to finally try to get some sleep, but of course I couldn't sleep with the TV and the light on, so I turned them both off, and I was so freaked out. Now one of the things that would happen to me every once in a while in my haunted house was my bed would shake or I'd feel weight on my covers, and I was just waiting for that to happen. But what I found was so much worse. After i turned off the television and the light, I jumped in bed, I pulled the covers up over my head, and as soon as I was about to fall asleep, I heard a loud crash sound come from downstairs. My first thought was that I was scared for my dog. He was barking and growling, and I ran down the stairs, and his cage, his kennel was slightly askew from where it had been before. He was backed up into the corner of the cage, teeth bared and ears pressed back, staring right in front of the refrigerator. He didn't even acknowledge me when I came in the room. And that was one of the freakier things that had ever happened to me. I have one more lined up for you today, listener. Listener. This one comes from my former roommate, a great friend of mine named Nick Rossman, wrote into the show with this short story. It was dusk time in the evening in Schoharie County at the tail end of autumn. The county is extremely rural, hidden in its own pocket intertwined at the edge of the Catskills. It's the kind of place you can aimlessly drive through the back roads and only pass the rare rusty pickup or farm truck every so often. There were four of us in the car, I was in the back seat, seated behind the driver. My two friends in the front wanted to head to this gravely desolate, seasonal road that no one ever drives on so they could smoke some pot. The two of us in the back had no plans to participate, but were just tagging along for the ride since there was nothing better to do. The sedan weaved its way through the countryside and we arrived at Pangman Road, pulling over on the dirt shoulder. This road gets unnervingly windy and steep, jutting through the deep forest for many miles until it resolves at a county road at the top of the mountain so we decided that the base of the road was isolated enough for two of my friends in the front to smoke in peace. Straight ahead, on the left-hand side of the road, a couple of hundred feet away, there was an old brown house, and directly to the right of us, also on the dirt shoulder, was the trailer portion of an 18-wheeler that had been there so long that it practically embedded itself into the ground, becoming just another part of the landscape. It was getting darker, but it was still light enough to make out the color of the tree branches, the details of the unkempt house with no cars in the driveway or lights on, and the white and chrome decaying trailer that we shared the shoulder with. The go-to light-up song was started, and the two in the front began the ritual of picking stems and packing the bowl. Since I was not partaking, I was staring out my window towards the house while conversing with my friends, taking in the scenery. There's not going to be a problem here, is there? said a booming, sudden voice from outside the car, loud enough to clearly overpower the brand-new song playing on the speakers. An older man, large in stature, appeared on my side of the car, right where I had been looking at the window. "'My friend in the driver's seat clumsily tried to hide the paraphernalia out of sight "'and tripped over his words as he said, "'No, we're just trying to find service so we can make a phone call, "'a believable reason for pulling over, "'since cell phone service is spotty and inconsistent in this area. "'Well, you should probably think about moving along,' said the man, "'clad in worn-out, faded farm clothes. "'Sorry, we'll get going,' my friend said, at this point muting the stereo. "'The man looked all of us over individually for a few seconds, "'each before turning around to begin walking towards the house.' We all locked eyes on him as he strolled away, sitting in silence. The only sound now was the faint remnant of the idling engine. My friend in the passenger seat broke the silence, mentioning the eeriness of the encounter, how he appeared from out of nowhere. Surely we would have seen him approaching, his skeptical but brief demeanor, and the new observation that his footprints weren't making any sound as he walked over the road covered with so many dried up leaves that you couldn't make out the loose gravel underneath. No compression from his weight on the ground beneath him. Just as he finished the sentence... The man, who was now halfway to the house, disappeared. He had not made some unnoticed turn. We did not somehow misjudge how far he had walked. He just ceased being, without making a sound. Thank you very much, Nick, for that story. Well, that's going to just about do it for episode two of the Keep Digging podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for bearing with the fact that I didn't have any guests for you today. I promise later on in the week I'll have a couple of those guests that were supposed to be here today. Until then, you can now find the podcast on iTunes. If you don't mind leaving us a quick rating and review, that would be excellent because it would help more people find the show, we could get more stories for you, more guests, and we could keep pumping out content for a good long time. The music today was all by the band Desafinato, which Nick Rossman, the person who sent that last story in, plays base for. Again, that's Desafinado, and you can find their stuff at wearedesafinado.com. That's D-E-S-A-F-I-N-A-D-O. I've been Adam Zeke. This is Keep Digging. Thank you for checking us out. Have a happy Halloween. I'll see you next time.